All right. Turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, we will continue our study of Christ and the covenants. The first week we looked at Luke 24 and we saw that Jesus is the point of the entire story. He's the point of the entire Bible. That everything, Old Testament and New Testament, points to Jesus. And that because of that, uh, no matter where we look in the Bible, we find that God can lead us in our discouragement and in our despair. That He has promises to give us in those moments. Last week, we began looking at Genesis 1 and 2, and we saw that God created us in His image to glorify Him to the world. He gave us a good job which was to work the garden and keep it and be fruitful and multiply. He gave us a good identity as his children. He gave us a good home in the garden. And he made a special bond with us called the covenant. That he would be our God and we would be his people and we'd get to live with him. All we had to do was obey him about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, you can have all this. All you have to do is trust me. Don't eat from that one tree. You can have everything else. Well, as we talked about last week, we know that Adam disobeyed, he ate from that tree, and he fell. So this week, we're going to look at Genesis 3, where we actually see that fall take place. So, please read along with me if I, as I read the entire chapter of Genesis 3, verses 1 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat of all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, 
and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden, to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's give our attention to it. When my wife and I bought our first home, we bought a small little bungalow house at 49th and Peoria. We thought it was a mansion. It was only about 800 square feet, but it was bigger than our uh, 500 square foot apartment that we had before that. And we were excited about living in an older home. It had all these features all over it that would show you just how old it was. There was a sidewalk that went through, so there was the house and there was a little side fence, and there was an old sidewalk that went beside the side of the house into the backyard. And backyard in the backyard, there was a like a concrete square or concrete rectangle of footings where there must have been an old shed or an old room or something like that back there in the backyard. It was gone. wasn't there anymore, but the footing was still there and the sidewalk was still there. Well, that sidewalk was so old and had been there so long that there was a gigantic oak tree. At some point after the sidewalk had been laid and the fence had put up, been put up, this gigantic oak tree had grown up underneath the sidewalk and through the fence to where the sidewalk was all busted. It was all broken up. And if you looked at the fence, the oak tree had grown up around the fence and literally that fence ran smack dab through the middle of this gigantic oak tree. But the oak tree kept growing and growing and growing over the 50 or so years it had been there, and this oak tree produced thousands of acorns, and those thousands of acorns could produce thousands more of oak trees. And I remember seeing that for the first time and thinking, that one little acorn, that one little acorn, just this big, had planted into the ground. It had everything necessary to produce this unstoppable oak tree. Everything in that one little seed produced this unstoppable oak tree that couldn't be stopped by the concrete or the fence or the weather or anything else that had grown up in this powerful, beautiful tree that was capable of producing more and more life. The first time I sold that story to RUF, I accidentally said that this, uh, that this acorn had the power to produce thousands of more acorn trees. And my students had to get laughing about that because acorns don't produce acorn trees, they produce oak trees, and then oak trees down here of acorns. But I just love the idea of thinking that that, that acorn, the small seed, had the power to do something that was unstoppable. What we're going to see today as we look at this passage, this passage, 
is that in Genesis 3.15, God makes an unstoppable promise to his people. And that promise is that this seed of the gospel that you see in Genesis 3.15 has the power to change everything in this world. It has the power to bring life where everything else in this world brings death. The seed of the gospel is an unstoppable promise that brings life in this world where everything else brings death. And that is something that is vital to us because as we're going to see, we go through sin and temptation just like Adam and Eve. The same tricks that Satan uses on Adam and Eve in this passage, he still uses on us today. And the thing that we need that is going to bring life to us and amidst that sin and temptation is this promise of the gospel, this unstoppable promise that God gives us in Genesis 3.15. So let's look at that this morning. We're going to look at three things. We're going to see the seed of the temptation, the seed of temptation, the fruit of sin, and the seed of promise. The seed of temptation, the fruit of sin, and the seed of promise. Kids, I want you to try to answer two questions. Who is the serpent and who is the seed? Who is the serpent and who is the seed? If you look back, at verse 1, we meet a new character in this scene. It says that the serpent was more crafty than any beast that God had created. Now, this word crafty can be used in a positive or a negative. In this connotation, it is a negative. This crafty serpent is a serpent that rebels against God's word. It's something that God had created. It's a created being, but it's a created being that lives in rebellion. Now, if you look throughout the whole Bible, especially at Revelation 12 and John 8, it teaches that this serpent is Satan. That Satan was a created being that rebelled against God and against his word. And now this Satan is coming to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent. And notice what the serpent says. In the ESV, it reads as a question. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? So this statement is, is kind of hard to translate from Hebrew to English, but it's not actually a question in the Hebrew. We have to put it in the form of a question to make sense of it, but it's actually more of just an assertion. It's, it's an assertion with a mocking, sneering, joking tone. Uh, one commentator said, it's like a servant is saying, God actually said? He actually said that? God actually said you shall not eat of any tree of God? He said that? Really? And notice what the serpent does. He exaggerates what God said. God said, you can eat of every tree in the garden. And the serpent says, God said you can't eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said. We know that God let them eat of every tree in the garden. That he was good to them. So what's the serpent doing? The serpent is undermining God's goodness. The serpent is casting doubt on God's goodness. He's planting this seed in Eve's heart that God is not good and that he's withholding something good from him. And you see in Eve's response that she begins to sort of crack. She begins to crack under the pressure from the serpent. She says, uh, that, no, no, no. She says, God said we can eat of any tree in the garden. We just can't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. And then what does she do? She asks God's word. 
She says, and neither shall we touch it. She's the first legalist. Adding things to God's word that aren't actually in God's word. Making God stricter than he actually is. This shows that the lie had already been sowing seeds of doubt in her heart. So with her heart sort of already fractured, then the serpent tells a lie to her mind. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this is a blatant lie because God had already told her the day that you eat of it, what? You shall surely die. And the serpent says, no, 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 you're not going to die. You're going to be more like God. Well, God had already made them like him. They already made him and he'd already made them in his image. They were already God-like. But Eve's heart and her mind were mistrusting. She believed the lie. She saw that the fruit was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It would make her wise. She took and she ate of it. Her will followed her heart and her mind. And then she gave it to Adam. And Adam took and ate as well. And that great doubt, the seeds of doubt, and that seed of a lie were planted in their hearts. And it gave birth to sin. Now, Satan still uses the same tricks on us today that he used in the garden. He is unoriginal. He's using the same tricks over and over again. He is constantly casting doubt on God's goodness to us. He's constantly saying stuff that, did God really, did he really give you this shot? Really? Like this was the best shot he could give you? Is that really the stops that God gave you? Really? Huh. It, you think God really wants you to be single? Really? Wow. Um, kids, he, might, he comes to you and he says, God really wants you to obey your parents. Those, those fools? Why would you obey them? He plants those seeds of doubts in our heart, and then sometimes he just comes with straight lies. He says stuff like, nobody would ever want you, you sin too much. You know what, if you really just had a better car or a better house, you'd be happy. You know, if you just had a different spouse, that would make all your problems go away. You know, if you just, if you just, uh, you know, put, took a little money and put it away for yourself and didn't tell anyone else about it, didn't, didn't pay your taxes on it, uh, didn't tell your spouse about it, it would be fine. You wouldn't show God. All lies. All lies. And it's those seeds of doubt and lies that undermine belief in God and destroy our faith. Uh, a student and I, we were at a coffee shop once, and this student had just become a Christian. And so we were meeting, and I was talking to him about how he was made in God's image and glory, and how we wanted to teach him how to live out that image in his everyday life. We had this great conversation about it. We got up to walk out and leave the coffee shop. And there was a professor that was sitting there by us. And the professor stopped us and he stopped and he said, do you really think that God exists? And he's like some parent that has to teach us like we're a bunch of kids. And I said, yeah, yeah. I actually believe that we need a parent. That we can't parent ourselves. Now, what was he doing? He didn't make a logical argument. He didn't try to convince me that God didn't exist. He made a smear. 
he made an assertion. He questioned his heart, not whether God exists, but whether or not he was good. And if that's you today, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, whether you're religious or irreligious, I'm so glad that you're here. We want ethos to be a place where it's safe for people to come with their doubts, for people to come with their misunderstandings, for people to come with their confusion. If people come and say, I can't believe that you would think that there'd be a God who got to teach us how to live the way a parent teaches a child. And I'd say, yeah, it's hard for me to believe too. I'm glad you're here. Because it's a seed to temptation that give way to the fruit of sin. And that's the second thing that we see in this passage is the fruit of sin. Adam and Eve ate. And then the passage tells us all of these negative, earth-shattering, cataclysmic effects that come after they eat. In verse 7, it says that their eyes were open and they saw that they were naked. That's shame. They experienced shame. Then in 7 and 8, we see that they're hiding. They use creation to create fig leaves to cover themselves, and they hide behind the trees. And who are they hiding from? They're hiding from God. The God who loves them and created them and who walks in the cool of the day and wants to be with them, they're hiding from that God. In verse 10, we see that they're afraid. God begins to question them. He says, why are you hiding? And they're afraid. In verses 12 and 13, we see blame. Adam blames God and blames Eve for his decision. And Eve blames the serpent. In verses 14 through 18, we see all these curses. There's now judgment and defeat for the serpent. There's now relationship pain and suffering for Eve. There's toil in the garden in his work for Adam. In verse 19, we see that there's death. God says, from dust you came and from dust you shall go. In verses 23 and 24, we see judgment, that they're banished from the garden. Because of sin, Adam and Eve did not gain more life. They experienced death. And because of the the, the fall, they weren't more like God, they were less like God. So we have shame, guilt, hiding, blame, fear, death, judgment, curses. All this stuff is the fruit of sin. It's the fruit of their spiritual death. Their their relationship with God, themselves, man, and creation has been severed. And it's the fruit of physical death. Now, they're, they're in a decline. They're moving towards death. And we'll look at this a little bit more next week and what happens in Genesis 4, 5, and 6 as we get into the covenant with Noah. But in Genesis 4, we see that Cain murders Abel. And Cain's offspring becomes more and more violent. In Genesis 5, the genealogy of Adam repeats this phrase, and he died over and over and over again. It's like Moses is just beating a drum saying, and he died, and he died, and he died. The serpent was a liar. You didn't get more life, you got less life. And then in Genesis 6, we see that man is so corrupt, it says that every thought of his heart was only evil continually. We fell fast and far from God's glory. Now, how does that apply to us? Because we all descended from Adam, we all experience the sin and misery of the fall that Adam experienced. We experience shame, fear, guilt, Hiding, 
isolation, judgment, toil, pain, suffering. All of that we experience. And it all comes from the fall. Evolutionary biologists want to say, oh, it's just a natural part of life. Like death is just natural. Suffering, pain, survival of the fittest, it's all just a natural part of life. Well, if so, then why do we cry at funerals? Because it's not natural. Because we're created to live forever in relationship with the people that we lose. Uh, you know, sociologists and thinkers for years wanted to say that the problems in this world were all because of lack of the wrong government and lack of education. But throughout, he looked throughout the history of the world, every type of government has seen systemic evil, from fascism to democracy. You can point out different periods in history where there have been great evils committed. If you look at our own political system, you see that, that uh, politicians and personal interest groups promote policies and values that are absolutely contradictory to God's word and to, to, the, to the human flourishing, to life. What's happened is, when Adam and Eve fell, it brought this corruptive force of sin into our hearts, and it destroyed us. And because we break everything that we touch, everything around us is broken from our heart, to our home, to our communities. The fruit of sin has expanded all over the place. And the fruit of Adam's sin, it's so confusing because we live in this world where there's beauty and there's brokenness, right? We're all created in God's image. We also bear the law of God on our conscience. So humans are capable of amazing advancements in technology and medicine and amazing acts of kindness and love and grace. But we're also filled with brokenness and pain and suffering. And at the same time, remember last week we talked about the covenant of works. How because Adam was under the covenant of works, so we're still under the covenant of works. And so because of that, in his beauty and his brokenness, we still have this desire to be justified. And this need to be justified. We're still under God's law. We're still under that, that principle of do this and live. So we feel this judgment in our hearts. We feel shame and guilt over the things that are happening in this world. But at the same time... We still have the force of sin destroying us. There's the obligation to keep the covenant with Adam, but not the ability to do it. And so that plays its out, itself out in all different types of ways. Uh, for some people, they keep hopping from political party to ideology to belief system, just hoping that something will fix them. Just hoping that something will save this world and save them. And it never happens. For some of us, we keep trying new religious technique after new religious technique, new church after new church, just hoping there's something that will rescue us from our shame and our guilt. For some of us, we've been uh, adamantly devoted to following Christ all, you know, as, as best we can all through our lives. And yet we're still stuck in the same cycles of shame and guilt. We're still frustrated by our inability to change. We still repeat the same failures over and over again. Uh, for parents, you know, we see, you see all the, 
the suffering, the sin, the misery in this world, and you just want your kids to stay away from it, to avoid it, to be protected from it. And so what do you do? You ration down. You're strict. But then they can't keep your law. So what do they do? They rebel. And then you get frustrated and you get angry. So you ratchet down on more. And it just makes it worse. And before you know it, you're screaming at your kids that you just pray for. Because they won't go to bed. And kids, you know that you want to be a good friend. You know that you want to have friends. And you want to love people. And you want to play with them. But it's hard because that means you have to share. That means you have to sacrifice something. The good that we want to do, we can't do. Because of this force, this sin that lives in our hearts. There's beauty and there's brokenness all in this world. Because the world is broken. And Satan is behind the scenes orchestrating and and, uh, controlling and manipulating things. And then we have this power called the flesh in our sin nature that's warring against us. And what we need, the only thing that will heal and fix all that is the unstoppable promise of God. And that's what we see in Genesis 3.15. There's this unstoppable promise. I just, guys... This was the hardest sermon to prepare for because there is so much good stuff in here. I can't possibly talk about it all. I've already gone longer than I wanted to go. Uh, Genesis 3 is hard. In some ways, every sermon has to connect back to Genesis 3, right? But, but there's so much good stuff in here. I, I just want to highlight all the little promises of the gospel in this passage. I want to point them out to you. And then I want you to go back and meditate on it. Go back and meditate and see what, which promises you need in this passage? The first thing we see is that God promises to graciously pursue these sinners. After Adam and Eve sin, what does he do? He walks back into the garden and starts asking them questions. He doesn't come at them with a hammer. He comes at them with an ex- uh, a question mark. He says, what are you doing? Where did you go? Why are you hiding? This is what all good counselors do. They come and they ask you questions to try to draw out what's going on in your heart. This is a picture of God pursuing sinners in their sin, trying to draw them out. God still pursues sinners like that today. He needs the 99 to go rescue the one. And how does he do it? He asks them questions. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why are you experiencing this shame and this guilt? Why, why are you so angry? Why are you so frustrated? Why are you hiding from me? He is trying to draw you out so you can experience the life of the gospel in your life. So he promises to pursue sinners, and then he promises to save sinners. If you look at Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right? So he's saying, right away, he's protecting Eve from the serpent. He's saying, Eve, you're going to have an offspring. And it is, he's saying, serpent, you're going to have offspring. And, and your offspring is going to be a war with my offspring that is going to come through Eve. But my offspring is going to produce someone who is going to defeat you. You will bite his heel, but he will crush your head. 
And, and throughout the whole storyline of the Bible, you see two different seeds. You see, you see one seed that is constantly warning against the people of God. And you see the people of God, you see this seed that is constantly being protected throughout the Old Testament. It's a, it's, a, it's a faithful line of people that, that even though they're sinners, they're still following God and believing the promises. And eventually you get to the New Testament and that seed comes into the form of man, one man. And that's Jesus. This is the promise that God would eventually send Jesus to crush the head of the serpent. And I love that imagery of the serpent biting his heel, but the, the snake crushing his head because, you know, I go up in the country and I know snakes, they're always on, you know, they're on the ground. And if they bite you, you don't worry about biting you in the head. You worry about biting you where? On the foot. In the heel. So it's this picture of the serpent biting a man in the heel and that venom going into that man, but at the same time, that man crushing his head. Right? It's like if, I, if, a, if a snake went and got in the midst of my family and I ran in and at the last moment I put my foot on that snake's head and I crush it. And at the same moment that I crush it, he bit me in the heel so he injected me with a poisonous venom that could kill me. But at the same time, I struck him dead. That's what happened to Jesus on the cross. The serpent, the serpent bit him. It killed him. But he crushed the head of the serpent. And what the serpent doesn't know is the very bite that he used to kill Jesus with was the bite that killed him. The bite that defeated him. And what he didn't know is that God had the power to raise Jesus from the dead and give him life. That's what he did. So it's this, it's this gracious promise that God is going to save sinners through Jesus. If you're here today, and you, and you don't, and you haven't put your faith in Christ, but you're looking at everything in this world, you're saying, I'm stuck in my sin and my suffering. I need something to rescue me. That's something that you need is Jesus. Put your faith in Him. Trust in Him. He is the only one that can give victory in the midst of sin and suffering in this world. We see God's power to save sinners. We see that God's unstoppable promise is also going to bring forgiveness. Uh, if you look in the passage, right, what, is, what does God do? He kills an animal. And he, he takes those skins and he makes a covering for Adam and Eve. And this, this covering, this dead animal, is a foreshadowing of the sacrificial system. That to be covered, to be cleansed from your sins, is going to require blood. It's going to require a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is Jesus. The shame and the guilt that you feel, God has already paid for in Jesus Christ. And so if you're a believer and you're still stuck in sin, you're continually stuck in sin, this is an unstoppable promise to you that you can keep coming back to God over and over and over again, no matter how many times you're stuck, no matter how many times you blow it again, because Jesus has already died for those sins. And His blood covers you. There's an unstoppable promise of, of salvation for sinners. There's also an unstoppable promise for life. Right? Uh, God kicks them out of the garden, but the tree is still there. But he puts this flaming sword in front of the tree. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of judgment. That one day judgment will come. That the tree of life, we've been cut off from it. One of the things that Satan does here is he casts doubt in God's judgment. 
He said, there's not going to be any judgment. And God said, yeah, there's going to be judgment. And there is judgment. That, that if you're apart from me, you're not going to experience life. But in the gospel, we see that Jesus took that sword. That Jesus would judge for us so that we could go in and we can experience life in this life and life in the future. Because in heaven, in Revelation, we see that there is a tree of life that we get to eat from. That everyone who has faith in Jesus gets to eat from that tree of life. But the judgment is real. To, to experience that life, you have to put your faith in Jesus. To experience these promises, we have to have faith in Christ. Uh, even here, we see a little seed of Adam's faith. So, Adam names his wife Eve. And Eve means the mother of the living. And if you look in the Hebrew, that word is very similar. The, the name Eve is very similar to the word for life. And what theologians see in that is that Adam heard that promise. And he believed God, that God was going to send someone to rescue him. And that was the very beginning of faith. That was the first act of faith. And, and that's how we experience the goodness of these promises. You can experience the promise of God in your life, but it comes through faith. The promise of salvation. The promise of life. The promise of being with God in heaven. The promise of having forgiveness of sins. But it comes by faith in Jesus. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. And we live by faith in the gospel from beginning to end. Those are the promises that are held out here for sinners and sufferers like us. God has an unstoppable promise to give us life and to reverse the effects of sin in this world. We have to receive it by faith. So let's go to him now and ask him to help us do that. Please pray.